0: Shabbat Shalom. And so as we've just been thinking about the holiness of God, uh, the scripture that has been on my heart is Romans 12, where God calls us to respond by presenting our bodies to him as a a living sacrifice. And he says, this is holy and acceptable. And as I look at that passage, uh, as I look at that passage, I see it begins by saying, brothers and sisters, thank you. And as I see this passage of Romans 12, where God is inviting us to present our bodies and our lives as as a living sacrifice, he's showing us what family life looks like when God is our Father. And so today, I'd like us to open up Romans 12 and invite God's Spirit to guide us in this passage, because it paints a picture of the life that God is calling us to, not just individually, but as a family together. And he says in, in chapter 12, he says, Therefore, he says, I urge you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what the will of God is, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. And in this passage, God is calling us to say, what it means by presenting your body as a sacrifice is to follow God's will, to say, Father, I'm going to follow what you want for me and how I live my life. And in this passage, he breaks it down and what that looks like. He says, Do not be conformed to the world. In the passage, it talks about a few different areas. It says, Don't be conformed to the way that the world works, but exercise your gifts with God's grace, by God's grace. It says, Don't be conformed to how the world lives, but in our family, love runs deep. And it says, Don't be conformed to the way where in the world people make friends and they make enemies. But in our family, we relate to people who are different than us as ourselves. And so, as we look at this passage, let's invite God's Spirit to guide us into seeing how we can live life together as the family that God calls us to be. As it begins, after he says, this is the will of God, it says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of yourself than you ought to, but to use sound judgment as God has assigned to each person a measure, a measure of faith. And so we're all parts of one body and we all have different gifts. I think the difference here of what this is saying is that God is calling us as part of his will for our lives as God has given spiritual gifts to each of us on how to live. But the difference is that in the world, it's so easy to define ourselves by our gifts, by our strengths and our accomplishments that our validation is in those things. And God is saying, those are gifts by my grace that you didn't deserve. You're to exercise them, use them. That's my will for you. You're going to come alive when you use your gifts. But don't get caught up in, taking your, in defining yourself and your identity and validation by your gifts. It talks about using sound judgment to now look at yourself too highly. And uh, I used to say that brutal honesty was my love language. I don't know if you guys have heard about the five love languages, like acts of service, physical touch. There's words of affirmation. And I used to say, it's not words of affirmation that's my love language. It's brutal honesty. Tell me the truth. And, uh, and one day at work, I was talking to my coworker, Justin. and He said, Ravi, I don't think brutal honesty is actually your love language. <laughs> uh, and it hit me. Uh, when I was doing pretty well, like, like at school, if I was like at a 92, and brutal honesty meant someone showing me how I can get up to a 98, I wanted the brutal honesty. But when the brutal honesty was going to challenge my view of myself and make me think that maybe I had failed, I didn't want to hear the brutal honesty anymore. I was like, okay, before I wanted brutal honesty and sound judgment, not anymore. And I think it's because when I take my definition and my validation from my gifts, from my accomplishments, then. My identity is fragile, and God's saying it can it can twist and turn on one side of the coin. I can feel great and awesome, and it can get to thinking too highly of myself. And then when things change in life, and they're not going how I want, and I'm and I'm messing up, or things aren't going well, it can easily go into insecurity and feeling like a failure. And God's saying in our family, I don't look at you, son. By I don't look at you, daughter, by your accomplishments and your gifts. I look at you as my son or my daughter, as your father and your identity is in your relationship to me, nothing else. And that's how life is in this family. And it says that each, each of you is a part of this body and a part of each other and we all have a different function. We're interconnected but dependent upon each other. And so not only can we have, be brutally honest and, and actually look at ourselves because we don't define ourselves by our gifts, but we don't have to compare to ourselves to each other because we all have a different role in the body. It's like a brain surgeon and a Navy SEAL. Maybe there's some overlapping skills. You've got to have split-second decisions. But those are different jobs. And God is saying we don't have to compare ourselves to each other because God has given each of us a different role, different gifts in the body. And he's given us the grace to exercise them. It says he's given us a measure of faith and that's how we exercise the gift. I think of it like a muscle. Like I was born with muscles, but in order to, to fully use the muscle, I got to exercise it. As I, as I, as I exercise the gifts God's given me, I'm going to grow in them. I only have, he, whatever faith he's giving me muscles I already have, but God's inviting me to get the full use out of them. And God has given each of us gifts that are different and unique to each of us in this body. And in our family, God is calling us to serve and to you, to use them and to serve this body out of the gifts. And the encouragement is, I would say, to take some reflection on the Shabbat and to ask God's spirit to speak to you about what gifts he's given you uniquely to serve your families, to serve our community, to serve our congregation. Because each of us is different and unique and we need those gifts. We need the gifts God has placed in each of us in order to be the family that God has called us to be. And, uh, and, as, and as we do that, we can come alive in our gifts without being defined by them. And it goes on to say that um, as we use our gifts, though, that our motivation is to be love and to love without hypocrisy, detesting what is evil, holding on to what is good. And what, and what God's saying is not only in our family do we not work like the world works, but we also don't live like the world lives. And in our family, love runs deep because it's easy in the world to let love be a cheap thing to just being, being nice to each other. And God is saying in our family, it means something deeper. It means that love has convictions. It says earlier that God's will is good, acceptable, and perfect. And I like the complete Jewish Bible and how it translates that. It talks about it good being. It's what's best for us God's will is, is not just something that's nice, but it's the best thing for us. If we were going to look at all the different options, what's in our best interest is what God wants for us. When we present our, our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, it's not God is just going to use that and exploit that. He's going to use that to guide us on what's best for us. It says what's acceptable, and, and the word for that in Greek has to do with satisfying. That God's will for us, what God wants is ultimately going to be satisfying and it's perfect. There's nothing we can add to it to make it better. And when love runs deep, it means that this love has convictions in our family. It means that love isn't just nice. It means that when anything is, is less than perfect, when anything is going to leave us empty instead of satisfied, when anything is going to be self-destructive instead of what's best for us, then we're going to abhor and detest what is evil and hold fast to what's good. And in our family, God's inviting us into a love that runs deep and has convictions, and that it's not just nice, but it runs deeper. It talks about being tenderly devoted to one another in brotherly love, and outdoing one another and giving honor to each other, in giving each other preference, in giving each other affirmation for what we've done and, what we, and, and our gifts that God's given us, and uh, Last year, I was at a a Messianic leadership uh, kind of training event. And one of the speakers, Preston Morrison, was from a congregation in Phoenix. And he talked about, he said, what's the soil of your life and what's the soil of your ministry? That when people are around you, this is the type of thing that they experienced. You know, some people, when you're around them, maybe the soil you have is anxiousness. Maybe the soil you have is, is a worry about life. There's different soils we can have. And I think what this is God's calling us to is let the soil of our family be tender love. Let it be a soil of love and affirmation. And so many times in families, so many times at work, so many times in the world, the soil can be gossip. The soil can be flattery. The soil can be all sorts of things. And God's saying in our family, the soil that we grow in is love and affirmation. And in this family, the love runs deep and God is inviting us to examine what the soil of our life is. That as people spend time with us, what are they leaving with? And God is inviting us into that love and to that affirmation of giving honor. And after describing what love looks like in our our, uh, interactions, it goes on to describe what it looks like in our attitude. It says, do not be lagging in zeal, be fervent in spirit, keep serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, enduring in distress, persisting in prayer, contributing to the needs of the Kedoshim, the saints, the people of God, and extending hospitality. And on one hand, I look at it at a beautiful picture, and the other hand, I look at this as burnout. There's so many times my time with God that I spend with him is at the end of the day, after a long day of work, and I get to a passage like this, and I'm like, God, I already feel exhausted. <laughs> reading all of these things just makes me feel more exhausted just reading about it. And, uh, and it's, just, it's just tough. But I think what's interesting is, is it, it assumes that life is difficult. It talks about rejoicing in hope, enduring in distress. It assumed it's difficult. And um, in life, we face that because sometimes, like I said, love feels cheap. And when we feel the stress, I think love love might feel cheaper. I remember uh, several months ago, I was driving in the family with my car, and I was describing some of the difficulty I was facing at work, and I I just felt like I was uh, facing the pressures there. And my sister, Reva, says, well, we love you, Ravi. And I responded, what good is your love to me when I feel like I'm being crushed? And I was in a very difficult, a difficult place because if, so, if I feel like I'm just being crushed by this huge boulder and I can barely breathe, someone to the side is saying they love me, it doesn't feel like much. That's nice. That's nice, but that doesn't mean anything to me right now. But when Paul was writing this to the congregation in Romans, he gets that because he writes later on to another community, we are hard pressed in every way yet not crushed perplexed, yet not in despair, persecuted, yet not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. And when I'm feeling struck down, or when I'm feeling perplexed by what's going on, I think, I'm like, okay, how is Paul saying this? How is Paul saying struck down but not crushed? To keep persisting in prayer and enduring through distress, how do do we do that? And as I look at that, it brings me back to Roman. It brings me back, excuse me, to Isaiah 53, because I realize that my picture of what God's love was like—it's not God's love looking at the outside of me, when I'm facing pressure in life, of Him saying, "I love you" from out there. It's Him with me here, knowing exactly what I'm going through. Because just like we read about feeling forsaken, or perplexed, or struck down what we experience in life it says in isaiah 53 that he has borne our griefs and carried our pains he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities it's not like the god understands what we're going through in a theoretical sense that he gets it it's that he's personally experienced it and that he's there with us and whatever pressure i face at work or in my life whatever pressure we face in our lives Yeshua knows what it's like and he's there with us. And we have this hope that just like he endured it on the cross and rose from the dead, that I know that not only is he, as I, as I feel crushed, not only is he there with me, but one day he's going to rip all of that, uh, that boulder, all of those pressure like it's a sh- like a piece of paper. And we have this hope. We can rejoice in this hope that whatever we're going through right now, God's love is not a cheap, nice thing but a real thing that he's here with us and that we can rejoice in the hope that one day he's going to rip those pressures apart and the world's going to fold up like a scroll and he'll make a new heaven and new earth. And we have that hope when, when we go through the difficulties of life, that love isn't cheap, but that in our family, God's love runs, it runs deep. And the last thing in this passage that it talks about is not just how love works within our family, but in how do we treat people different than us? It goes on in Romans 12 to say, bless those that persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another and do not be proud, but associate with the lowly. And in this part, it's not talking about how we relate to each other in the family, but how we relate to people outside of the family. And it's completely different because in our own lives we might associate and relate and spend time with people who are like us we have common ground with. And in this passage Paul is saying that in our family we bless and we take care of those who persecute us, who bother us, who attack us, that we associate with people who are different than us. And it's, it's a different picture of what it looks like. It's, Yeshua said the second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul is saying what that looks like is empathy and action. To rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And as Paul is writing this, he doesn't say bless those who persecute you in a theoretical sense. Because he was someone who was whipped several times, it says, 30, he had 39 lashes. Somebody who was stoned and left for dead. Somebody who was abandoned by his community. And so he writes this as not someone who this is just a theoretical nice thing but as someone who's actually had to go through it. And then as I thought about it deeper, he just doesn't know it as someone who's been persecuted. He writes it as someone who used to persecute the Messianic community and the followers of Yeshua, who would, who would persecute them and take them away from their homes and put them on trial. And for him, he's saying, in this, in this, in this kingdom, in this family, it's different than the world. As I look at the world so many times, it's my tribe versus your your tribe, my beliefs versus your beliefs, and we're polarized. And I believe what I believe, and you believe what you believe, and we're not going to get along. And God is saying here, live in harmony with everyone. It talks about in the Greek being of one mind, of finding common ground, though no matter how we differ from other people in the world, in our our wider communities and in our lives, to find common ground with them, to do what's good and beautiful and right in the eyes of all people. And God is calling us to a life where we don't just stay in our family and agree with those in our family, but where we can go outside of our tribes and those who agree with us and to make friends outside of those who the world makes friends with because we're brought together by the blood of Yeshua. And we know that if it wasn't for His grace, if it wasn't for His mercy, by the mercies of God, if it wasn't for that, we wouldn't have anything. It says... Do not be wise in your own eyes. And I think it's so often it, what can separate from other, us from other people is we think, well, they don't understand. They don't get it. And he says here, it's don't be wise in your own eyes. And it's interesting because he uses this phrase just the chapter before in chapter 10 when he talks about the Jewish people. And he's saying to the believers in, in, the, in Rome, he's saying, don't be wise in your own eyes about the mystery of Israel, about why for the large part the Jewish people rejected for Yeshua and its future he says, don't be proud and wise in your own eyes. It wasn't that you were more aware. It wasn't that you were wiser. It was by the grace and the mercy of God that you were accepted. And don't be thinking that you're somehow better than everybody else. And, some, and so often, I got to check myself and we need to check ourselves because that's what can separate us from each other. That feeling And God is saying, just like he took in the Roman community and the Gentiles out of mercy and grace, it's going to be the same mercy and grace that he takes the Jewish people back to himself and gathers them back to himself. And here Paul is saying, with those who disagree with you, we aren't enemies in a culture war. We aren't enemies in any sense. But to look at people as our lost brothers and sisters, as the lost sons and daughters of God, not as our enemies because our fight is not against flesh and blood, and we don't have enemies of other people. Whether Paul is writing to the Roman community saying, you're not enemies with the Jewish people, or whether it's to the people in our lives who we think are part of another group, part of another tribe, part of another group, that God is looking at us as, as family he wants to bring, wants to bring together. And as I look at the passage, it's crazy to me that some of the greatest people in Christian history wrote about this passage, and completely missed it. A lot of my uh, friends who are Eastern Orthodox, they look up to St. John Christendom. I'm butchering his name, but uh, uh, Christendom means gold mouth, and he was one of the greatest Christian preachers in, I believe, the, the 300s or the 400s. He's considered an early church father. And he writes these homilies, these sermons on the book of Romans, and at the same time, you read some of his stuff he had to say about the Jewish people, and you cringe. Because it's crazy how we could write sermons on these chapters and totally miss this. And it, and it got to me, the fact, and, and I was talking to some of my Orthodox friends, and they were Eastern Orthodox friends, and they were saying, well, you've got to understand, it wasn't just the Christians were persecuting the Jewish people. It was that the Jewish people were also persecuting the Christians and doing horrible things to them. And I think to myself, well, that's true. It's, what if John Christendom hadn't missed it? What if some of these early church fathers had actually invited the spirit to guide them in this as they read this passage? It talks about being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the word transformed here, it's only used four times in the New Covenant Covenant Scriptures. Twice it's describing the transfiguration of Yeshua where he reveals his full glory or to some extent of it to his disciples. And then the other two times where it talks about this word is here in Romans 12. And then again, in 2 Corinthians, where it says, God is going to transform you, change you from glory to glory by my spirit. And then it says in here, be renewed by your minds. And it's only, that word renewed is only used one other time in the New Covenant Scriptures. In Titus, where it says that God saves us by renewing us by the Holy Spirit. These words, he's talking about this transformation and this renewal. In every case where it's used in Scripture, it means the spirit is transforming us. The spirit of God is renewing us. And I think to myself, what if John Chrysostom had inviting God's spirit to open his eyes up to scripture, to this passage as he read it? And I think it's a challenge for us that on this Shabbat, as you maybe have some time tomorrow, to look at this passage again and invite God's spirit to renew you in it, and to show you specifically what his will is for you as you read this passage. I think also about Martin Luther, and he also wrote a commentary on Romans, and he began uh, a, lot, a lot of his time in the Protestant Reformation by saying great things about the Jewish people, by hoping the Jewish people would embrace Yeshua. And then he got bitter, and like John Christenton, began to write some things that make you cringe about what he said about our people. And again, it's like, same story, repeated in history. He writes a commentary, he gives lectures on Romans, he, he, he turns the world and Europe upside down by, by reading the book of Romans and seeing the grace of God. And he gets the first few chapters, and then his biases shut him off from hearing what God has to say. And for me, congregation friends, let's not let our own biases block us up for what God wants to say in this passage to us, especially this week. As we look at this passage, it it paints for me a picture of the life that God is calling us into our family. Where we don't work while the world works to find identity, to find validation, but that we work out of the grace of God using the unique gifts he's given us. And we work out of a place of his grace and his mercy. That we don't live like the world lives, but that we let his love run deep in us. That the soil of our lives can be love and affirmation for each other. And that we can continue because of the love of Yeshua demonstrated on the cross. The, like, like he says in Romans, neither height nor death, angels or principalities, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And as we let his love run deep in our lives, it can run deeply in our community and become the soil of our lives. And, he, and lastly, he calls us not to make friends and enemies like the world, but to treat each other and to treat those who are different than us as ourselves, to love our neighbor as ourselves, because of how God first loved us. And so as we go on the Shabbat, we have this invitation from God to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, to receive his will, to follow his will. And as we do that, I pray that we would come alive. Right before this chapter 12, he goes by saying that God is going to draw the Jewish people back to him and it's going to bring life from the dead for the whole world. That the salvation of Israel is going to result in life for the dead for the nations. And by those from the nations provoking the Jewish people to jealousy, Israel is going to come into its full restoration. And then he says, therefore, this is what we do. In looking forward to what God is going to do, in completing the work of gathering the Jewish people across the world back to the land of Israel, as we look forward to what God is going to do to have Yeshua come back, bring life from the dead, to rip the pressures of life like a piece of paper and make the world light again, as we look forward to that, God has shown us what his will is for us today. A will that's what's best for us, what's ultimately satisfying and what's perfect. And it's ours because of Yeshua. He says, this is your holy and acceptable worship to God. And it's acceptable because everything in us that is unacceptable was transferred to Yeshua and he has given us new life. And the invitation for us who may have not accepted Yeshua yet and put our trust in him is that a life that is ultimately satisfying, a life that's best instead of self-destructive, a life where God is ultimately going to bring us back to the perfect world that he created is available to us through Yeshua who can make us into who he fully created us to be, and so that we can follow his will and experience that life together as a family. And I'll pray for us as we move forward back into worshiping God. And if you would like any prayer on how to move from conforming to the world and the ways where it so easily entangles into moving into the family life that God has called us to, we'll have a time of prayer during worship as well. Father, I thank you that you adopted us into your family and that you are holy you're completely other and that you invite us into a life that's holy and completely other. God, we thank you that you have given us your spirit to renew us, to transform us and we embrace your grace and we embrace your spirit to have the life and to enter into the life and the will that you have for us, God. And we thank you that it was made possible through the death and resurrection of Yeshua. That he was struck down and crushed so that we can know your presence. That he was abandoned and forsaken so that we can know what it means to be fully accepted by you. And we say yes to him and yes to the life that he calls us to. In Yeshua's name, amen.